carnage in Gaza, the journalism Israel is trying to suppress, the Palestinian reporters risking everything to get the story out. Shadow banning and age gating, social media companies tying themselves up in knots over content coming out of Gaza. And silencing Palestinian voices is nothing new for Israel. We'll take you back 50 years to a historical case in point. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. After three weeks of punishing Israeli bombardment of Gaza, Palestinians there remain sealed off from the outside world. Israel is still refusing to allow international journalists or investigators in. Ask yourself why. The situation has made news outlets and audiences entirely reliant on local journalists, Palestinians in Gaza, to find out what is going on. Reporters there face immense challenges and dangers, with fuel and electricity cut off, charging phones and equipment and transmitting material gets harder by the day. The reports that do make it out provide raw, unfiltered views into the carnage produced by the bombing of the most densely populated place on Earth. Since Hamas's horrific attack on Israelis on October 7th, Palestinian journalists have been killed at a rate of roughly one per day. Among the survivors, Al Jazeera Arabic's bureau chief in Gaza. Much of his immediate family was killed in yet another Israeli attack in a one-sided war, a military mismatch that has killed more than 7,000 Palestinians, at least 3,000 of them children. For Arabic speakers watching the news of Israel's assault on Gaza, one face has been synonymous with the coverage. Al Jazeera Arabic's bureau chief there, Wa'il Dahdu. This past Wednesday, Dahdu was reporting live when he got the call, the one every Palestinian in Gaza dreads. An Israeli airstrike had wiped out his immediate family, his wife, son, daughter, and grandson. They had been sheltering in the Nusayrat refugee camp in central Gaza, an area Israel had designated as safe. For Palestinian journalists, it was a crushing reminder, as if they needed one, that there is no safe haven left in Gaza. Having covered one massacre after another, they have come to fear the possibility, the probability, that they will find people they know, those closest to them, buried in the rubble. It's so scary and so terrifying to be a journalist because you're not just reporting on the suffering of the people, you're also reporting the killing of your friends and your family members. <laughs> We are actually seeing journalists performing other duties other than journalism. Heading to the place that got strike and just people gave me these two babies. One of the, the most heartbreaking videos is of Mu'taz Azaize carrying two children. And he's trying to do everything at once. He's trying to be the paramedic, he's trying to be the human to comfort the children. He's also trying to be the journalist to report on the story. It's really covering death and destruction 
around the clock now, where um, the entire territory is being deliberately deprived of food, of water, of medication, of electricity. I mean, the only thing the Israelis haven't succeeded in cutting off to the Gaza Strip is the oxygen supply. So I really couldn't overstate the challenges, whether at the personal or the professional or the psychological level. Palestinian journalists are providing a raw and ugly view of the carnage in Gaza, and they are finding audiences. Motaz Aziza reports in both English and Arabic. On the day before the October 7th attacks, he had 25,000 followers. Now he's at more than 9 million. I'm Motaz, and I will show you the massive destruction that happened to the Zahra city in the middle of the Strip. More than 14 residential towers got destroyed by the Israeli airstrikes. Ali Jad Allah is a photojournalist whose work has appeared in many international media outlets. They and many others are chronicling the destruction, the likes of which Gaza has never seen before. In 2022, a total of 67 journalists and media workers were killed around the world. In Gaza, they are being killed at a rate of roughly one per day, at least two dozen in less than three weeks. It is a journalistic killing field. Among the latest to be buried, Roshdi Saraj, co-founder of a company called Ayin Media, which works with international news outlets like Al Jazeera. Some of the organizations that relied on Siraj's work have paid tribute to him. Among them, Radio France International and Amnesty International, which said he was murdered by Israeli bombs. My uh, boss, Rushdi Saraj, before he was killed, one of the last posts he posted was, I'm sorry, I'm unable to report much because we don't have electricity or internet. So Israel, what they're trying to do is completely cut Gaza off from the whole world. If it is a war against Hamas, as they claim, why are you targeting journalists? Why are you imposing a media blackout on journalists who are sharing what's happening on the ground? Rushdi has always had um, a passion for filmmaking and photography. And one of his dreams was to show the world what Gaza is like, you know, the love stories. He didn't want to focus on destruction, on, you know, the loss of life. He really wanted to show the world that Gaza is full of hope, it's full of life. But he was compelled to become a journalist because of the horrible atrocities that Gaza was experiencing year after another, you know. We're following a variety of accounts. Um, Human Rights Watch to do our reporting. Obviously, we rely on on-the-ground information. So the journalists that are reporting on Gaza are doing incredibly vital work. The limited snapshots we're able to get, which are so critical for human rights advocates, for governments, for historians, for so many others to understand in real time what's taking place. So the limited accounts, the dispatches that we get um, out of Gaza are critical in terms of furthering our understanding of what the civilian population is facing there. More than 7,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed, at least 3,000 of them children. The casualty figures are updated daily by the dwindling number of medical professionals and journalists on the ground. Israel will not allow international reporters or investigators in, 
which has given its official space to cast doubt on the death toll. Are you saying that they're lying about the numbers? Are you saying Definitely. that those numbers are wrong? We know, we know that they lied about the numbers. Allegations that were echoed this week by the President of the United States. I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. The fact of the matter is that doctors in Gaza have developed an expertise in how to identify and account for the dead, a methodology born of necessity. When we talk about Gaza health authorities, we're talking about Hamas. Maligning the work of those on the inside is part of a concerted Israeli effort that continues to dehumanize Palestinians even after they have been buried. Human Rights Watch has been working in the occupied Palestinian territory for more than three decades. We've covered multiple rounds of escalations in the Gaza Strip. And when we've done our own independent investigations of individual strikes and verified the number of fatalities, they have been generally consistent with the figures of Gaza's Ministry of Health with no major deviations. The major reason is methodological. Uh, the Gaza Ministry of Health has access to data from hospitals and from morgues that is isn't available to simply anybody else. I would further note that not only does Human Rights Watch, but the UN, as well as the US State Department in their annual human rights reports, all use the figures from Gaza's Ministry of Health. And, and the Gaza Ministry of Health has also published the full list um, as of October 26 of those killed, their names, their ages, and other identifying um, information. Beyond dismissing the death toll in Gaza, one key focus of Israeli leaders and their PR machine remains the global media, the journalists Israel has locked out. It is a strategy that Israel admits to without shame. If the international media is objective, it serves Hamas. If it just shows both sides, it serves Hamas. According to politicians like Yair Lapid, this story is all about Hamas and October 7th, the brutality of those attacks on Israeli civilians. And Lapid made his name working in the Israeli media. He understands the importance of journalistic access at a time like this. In a different world, every news report about this war by any foreign news agency would start by emphasizing uh, that we are unable uh, to enter the Gaza Strip and to report from the scene of the crime because the Israeli military has banned us from entering. Then any statement issued by the Israeli military would have to be prefaced by saying, you know, this organization has a proven and demonstrated history of knowingly providing the media with falsehoods. And why would that be strange? There is no conflict in which the parties don't lie. It's called propaganda for a reason. The reason that Israel is preventing access is completely obvious. They, they don't have something to hide. They've very much uh, to hide. Which leaves the job of documenting this war in the hands of Gazans, journalists who are finding ways to make an impact. This little boy was pulled out alive. His rescuer rushes to his mother. But before she can embrace her boy, she passes out in a shock. Yusuf Hamash, a Palestinian filmmaker who also works with refugees, has teamed up with Channel 4, a British broadcaster, to produce invaluable reports like this one, taking viewers to the humanitarian heart of this story. Israeli drones. 
we call the sounds they make zanana, a buzzing bee, a constant hum. They never leave us. We are running out of places to hide. It is the kind of first-hand accounting of the impact of Israeli bombs and missiles the Netanyahu government does not want the world to see. And there is evidence the Biden administration also finds such journalism problematic. The U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is reported to have asked Qatari leaders to, quote, turn down the volume on Al Jazeera's coverage because it is full of anti-Israel incitement. It is not clear what Blinken was referring to specifically. Not that Wa'el Dahdu has taken any notice of that. The day after the Israelis annihilated his family, he was back on Al Jazeera Arabic, doing his job, come what may. Social media is another front in this war, and content moderation policies at some major platforms have people asking questions. Flo Phillips is here with more. Richard, since the start of this war, we've seen accounts being closed down, others shadow banned, as well as stringent age restrictions on who can watch certain videos. This past Wednesday, Meta raised eyebrows for closing the account of Ion Palestine, which has more than 6 million Instagram followers. The account going dark is being seen as a prime example of anti-Palestinian censorship, but Meta insists it disabled the account because of security concerns. Here at Al Jazeera, our digital team has been monitoring multiple platforms. It's seeing a big jump in the number of warnings attached to footage showing bomb devastation or traumatised Gazans. TikTok has been doing a lot of that. And when asked why, it cited its standard regulations on gory content. However, similar content related to Russia's war against Ukraine hasn't had this treatment. YouTube has been at it as well age-gating news videos coming out of Gaza, which means users have to sign in and verify their ages before they can watch. Age-gating has a purpose, shielding young people from unsuitable content. But again, it appears to be applied selectively. We didn't see this with news videos coming out of Ukraine. Advertisers are playing a role in this too. A lot of news content from Gaza has been demonetized. Ads are removed since corporations don't like selling their products alongside images of war. The Israeli government has had no such issues. It's pushing its ads online, many of which feature shocking images and text. They're getting a lot of play on YouTube. Sometimes they're even being run before videos aimed at kids. That begs the question, where's the age gating there? Thanks, Flo. To the story of another Palestinian voice now, silenced by an Israeli bomb more than 50 years ago. Hassan Kanafani was a writer who was best remembered for his books like Men in the Sun that narrated the experience of Palestinian dispossession and displacement. But Kanafani was first and foremost a journalist, exiled, living the life of a refugee in Lebanon. Beirut in the 1960s was a magnet for young reporters and revolutionaries, migrants and misfits. Lebanon was also playing host to the Palestinian leadership in exile at the time. It was in Beirut that Kanafani produced Al-Khadaf, a groundbreaking Palestinian magazine that has been somewhat lost in the mists of time. Three years ago, the Listening Post's Tarek Nafa traveled to Beirut to tell the story of Kanafani. The piece is just as relevant today as it was when we aired it back then. There are some voices, rare ones, 
that can take a moment in time and give it meaning. Voices of clarity that are themselves not easily defined. Hassan Kanafani, a writer, artist, journalist, playwright and politico, was one of those people. Surely as the Middle East turmoil keeps away the tourists... A video from 1970, a news report, captures Kanafani in the city where he made his name. In Beirut, a new business has developed. Revolution. Palestinian revolution. He's interviewed by Richard Carlton for Australia's ABC News. The Beirut leader of the Popular Front is Ghassan Kanafani. He was born in Palestine but fled in 1948, as he puts it, from Zionist terror. As the English-speaking spokesman of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, Kanafani made good TV, but he was by no means an easy interviewee. It does seem that the war, the civil war, has been quite fruitless. It's not a civil war. It's a people defending themselves against a fascist government. It's a moment of great confidence, of clarity, of vision, of conviction. And the way Rassan Kanafani speaks in that clip shows all of this, this energy that was the hope of the Palestinian revolution. Well, the conflict. It's not a conflict. It's a liberation movement fighting for justice. Well, whatever it might be best called. It's not whatever. Kanafani picks up on a very important word, which for me resonated the strongest, and this is the word whatever. This is exactly where the problem starts. This is a people who is discriminated, is fighting for his rights. This is a story. And this is the narrative that Palestinians unfortunately have not been able to relay to the world. The Palestinian narrative as narrated by Palestinians is not something that the world wants to hear. Why not just talk? Talk to whom? Talk to the Israeli leaders. That's kind of conversation between the sword and the neck, you mean. Ghassan said it in simple and clear language. How are we supposed to have dialogue? You're coming to slaughter me. Put aside the sword so we can have a conversation. They're better that way than dead, though. Maybe to you, but to us, it's not. To us, to liberate our country, to have dignity, to have respect, to have our mere human rights, is something as essential as life itself. In the Arab imagination, Kanafani is remembered for his storytelling, which explored the Palestinian experience, statelessness, separation and exile. In the West, he was the public face of the leftist PFLP, seen as one of the more radical Palestinian factions. Kanafani was not involved in the armed wing of the PFLP, or in the planning of high-profile airplane hijackings that the group became synonymous with. But he was an advocate of armed struggle and understood its mediatic value. If it went quiet, he wrote, no TV network would willingly give any Palestinian a minute of coverage to express themselves. Above all, though, Kanafani was a journalist, an accomplished one. Rassan Kanafani was a multifaceted, multi-talented human being. He was very significant in the Kuwaiti and Lebanese press in their heyday. We're talking about the 1950s and 60s. Rassan Kanafani was a central figure. I mean, he was associated with the founding of many magazines and newspapers throughout the region. 
Beirut in the 1960s and 70s was an extremely vibrant city. It was a truly Arab city and the Palestinian revolution was kind of the last hope for people. And so that's why Arabs from all over went to uh, Beirut to be part of that last front for revolution and creativity and activity and literature and journalism. After the defeat of Arab regimes in the War of 1967 and the disillusionment that came with it, Palestinians took matters into their own hands. A national struggle for liberation took form and for Kenafani, it marked a shift in thinking to the revolutionary politics of the PFLP. In 1969, he was made editor-in-chief of Al Hedef, the group's newly formed weekly magazine. Al Hedef was revolutionary in spirit and substance. It combined the PFLP's political messaging with analysis, humor, art, and calligraphy in a chronicle of the Palestinian resistance that linked it to anti-colonial struggles in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. He made left-wing media accessible well beyond the narrow confines of the already converted. He went after arguments by fellow Arab journalists as much as he went after arguments by Western journalists. His article were an unusual combination of satire, sharp witticism, as well as uh, information. I mean, can you imagine Soviet communist literature using humor and irony at that time? There was none of that. And Arab communists were even more dour, uh, more humorless uh, than the Soviet Union. So you can imagine when Ghassan Kafani comes with this new form of media, it was entirely novel. Al Hedef had an open door policy that made it a hub of cultural and artistic exchange. It was there that Kenafani and his associates produced some of the most iconic posters of the Palestinian Revolution. It was a progressive magazine with an engaged international readership, but it was the official party organ, some would say the mouthpiece, of the PFLP. I don't like the term mouthpiece. It's not true. Neither was it propaganda. We were not spreading propaganda. We were trying to get the truth to the people. That was the slogan of Al Hedef. It read, the truth is always revolutionary, which is what Lenin wrote. These truths were the refugee camps or the truth of the Palestinian situation. Al Hadaf was open to accept all kinds of new ideas. And for this reason, I think the importance of literature and journalism and culture from that era is that it was the founding culture. Kenafani left a distinctive imprint on the Arab cultural and media space. There is his pioneering fictional writing, and then there is this huge body of journalistic work. And when you look at the range of his output, you get the sense, perhaps, that he knew his time was limited, that he had a target on his back. On the 8th of July, 1972, Kanafani and his niece were killed in a car bomb outside his home. He was 36. It was among the first in a series of Israeli assassinations targeting Palestinian leaders and cultural figures. In its obituary of Kanafani, Lebanon's Daily Star said he was a commando who never fired a gun, whose weapon was a ballpoint pen, and his arena 
newspaper pages. Israel decided to go after all facets of the Palestinian national movement. Whether they were writers, journalists, combatants, they made no distinction whatsoever. They wanted to extinguish the flame of the Palestinian national movement in all its forms. Ghassan Kanafani has gone through two lives. There was the life that he actually lived on this planet, and there was a second life that he has been living after his death, especially in the last 20 years. His iconic image is almost everywhere. There's so many Facebook pages dedicated to him, Instagram pages. Resistance for him was something that was not necessarily just an action. The heart of resistance could be in the written word and this voice of hope and aspiration and clarity and conviction we don't have anymore and that's why this resonates so strongly with us today. Hassan Kanafani, a Palestinian journalist who paid for his refusal to be intimidated into silence with his life. Over the past three weeks, dozens more Palestinian reporters and photographers determined to document what is occurring in Gaza have paid that same price. Here at The Listening Post, we will continue to tell their stories, as well as the larger story in Gaza, the one the Israeli authorities have tried to keep the world from hearing and seeing.